Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode number 76. My name is Charles Lowell. I'm a developer here at the Frontside and your podcast host in training. With me is Elk Ryan, also a developer at the Frontside. Hello. Hey, what's going on? Not much. Are you excited about today's topic? Very excited. Yeah. You've got a personal stake in it because today we have in the room not only you, but also two developers who are also designers or designers who are also uh, developers. Our guest today is actually the first person who kind of fit this description that I ever worked with. It was a great experience, a great collaboration, and his name is Drew Covey. Drew is a senior supervisor of product design at Hue Studios in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Howdy, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Now, you're going to have to explain to us two things. One, what is a super senior product designer and what is Hue? Let's, let's, let's start off talking about Hue first. Uh, what, what exactly is Hue? Because I think it's a cool organization. Um, so I'm working with four people and I'm working um, on all sorts of brand new ideas. I think, you know, the, the greatest opportunity that I've had in my career at this company, Honeywell, um, is just working with physical product and and the digital space. So um, it's a unique opportunity. Not all companies focus on both. Uh, so it's really been a learning experience for me. Um, and working with a great group of creative individuals has also been a real privilege. So, you know, they say that at the end of the day, the most important thing is are the people you work with. And really, the, the entire team here has, has been fantastic, welcoming me in and letting me kind of explore and grow as a, as a developer and a designer. So it's, it's been great so far. So fantastic. I mean, uh, yeah, working with that group was, was absolutely wonderful. And what, what does, what does Hue stand for? Yeah, sorry. Um, so, so Hue is a Honeywell user experience. We have, uh, our previous CEO, Dave Cody, often called it Huey, but it's, it's, it's just Hue, <laughs> um, without the Jersey <laughs> accent. We have, um, I'm going to probably misrepresent, but we have well over eight to 10 studios throughout the world. Oh, wow. Each one kind of focuses on different, businesses for the most part. Um, the one here in Golden Valley tends to focus on uh, homes, buildings, and tech and homes and buildings technologies. The studio out of Seattle actually tends to focus on, again, let me get the acronym wrong here, but it's essentially worker safety and industrial safety. Uh, so all of that. What is it that you all do at Hue? So what we do here at the studio here in Golden Valley is we support various businesses throughout the homes and buildings technology space. About fall of last year, Honeywell went through a bit of a shift in their business and they used to do all automation control solutions. Uh, and so last fall, essentially, we saw that one large business that was headquartered and based out of Golden Valley uh, break into two areas of more direct focus. So out of Seattle, we have folks working on, like I, I think I mentioned before, but Seattle works on sensing and productivity solutions. We focus on the, the homes and building space. And so we're, we're both providing upfront research to understand what the customer needs. Uh, we're actually creating, you know, everything from very rough user flows to final uh, UIs. And we're also working with industrial designers to create final products. And those industrial designers work very closely with engineering. So Honeywell has a long reputation of very strong engineering uh, when it comes to the hardware space. We've kind of prided ourselves on excellent um, instruments and excellent um, performance. One thing very few people understand is that we don't just do thermostats. Um, you know, we're, we're in 
the business of turbos. We're creating you know, turbos for your car. We're creating all sorts of HVAC equipment. We're also handling various um, safety equipment. And so all these items need designing. All these items need designing, not just for end users and consumers, but they also need designing for workers in the field. So if we make a product that is more efficient, easier to use, and in some cases more attractive, not only does it learn, lead to more sales, it leads to more efficient workforces that can you know, work quicker, essentially, get up, and out, get up on the roof and get off in record time. So we're not just designing consumer products. We're, we're actually focused on a lot of other items as well, with oftentimes very large returns on investment. In, in the work that you do and that uh, Hugh does in general, so it, it sounds like, you know, there might be a large software component, a lot of, you know, digital design is kind of, we know it in the web space, but then also a lot of industrial design of just, you know, how is this thing going to look? How's it going to feel? How's it going to persist? How, how durable is it going to be? How's it going to be, how's it going to withstand usage? Where do you get involved uh, in that process. Right. So um, usually we'll get involved. So the entire organization gets involved with the process very early on. Um, one of the other shifts that happened in the fall is we got involved less on the production end and more on the actual marketing side. So marketing deciding what what's going to be built. So we're actually kind of really at the beginning understanding what problems need to be solved at first. As as far as my practice and my skill set, we usually step in once research well, we, we do get we get involved with with all that discovery phase work, but when it comes to actual deliverables, you'll oftentimes see our deliverables around the actual creation of understanding user interactions. So we'll take research from our user research and OVOC, which, which um, is an acronym for Observational Voice of the Customer, and we'll take that in, that those learnings, translate them into whatever solution we decide to build as a team. Uh, so my output's going to look like a user flow, something you build in an OmniGraph or Visio, and then it can start there, and then in, which is in the physical space, right? And then we'll actually work in our kind of we'll evolve those concepts into wireframes as well, wireframes that will then be handed off to other team members who specialize and focus on visual design. And so basically, it's it's kind of a very hands-on process from the very beginning to the very end. It's essentially kind of the yeah, just, just understanding everything from the physical to the digital. The process there doesn't, at least when we were working together, you know, uh, at least in your case, doesn't stop there. You were actually doing uh, a significant amount of the implementation uh, as well. Let's explore how do you how did you actually end up getting to that position where you were you know working through interactions, wireframes, and workflows, and then also getting to actually build. Uh, the product, you know, in the form of a, a complex single-page application. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So w- one of the components that I kind of brought here to the team was a bit of a deeper understanding of front-end web development. And so I'm often pulled into conversations here and there. And in the case of the project that we were working on specifically, it was essentially kind of uh, early days on that project. And we had a product that was pretty old, Um and needed a lot of work, and it was basically needed to be rebuilt. And we hadn't seen a lot of single-page applications at the time. In my case, I actually had worked on a couple small projects in my previous career or my previous job, and we can get into that kind of in, in a little bit, kind of where where my career path took me. But 
essentially it was me trying to kind of pave the way and eventually have that that work scale so it was kind of proving that yes it could be done um showing how it could be done and then getting other developers on board and my job or my role here has oftentimes involved basically becoming a liaison be- between our design teams and our development teams and ultimately in this case like you mentioned it, it did wind up in turning into code that ultimately got factored into production code so it was definitely a time where we were experimenting with kind of what role we would play i will say in full disclosure that more or less we tr- were trying to um, move towards basically making better informed decisions but not playing as much of a role in actual production code writing so it's it's something that we want to help scale and i think we'll talk about you know that kind of role and how well it scales hopefully in a little bit here but ultimately it's it's kind of changed a little bit i i, I don't yeah. as much i don't as much code as i as i used to let's right. put it that way I, <laughs> right right but uh, but but nevertheless the skill is there i mean you definitely don't don't sell yourself short i mean you weren't slapping together a bunch of jquery plugins you were standing up a you know, basically a full stack system with like a stub deck background and like Node.js. And like, you know, this was back in early days where there weren't like, uh, I think there was a, a custom build. Um, there was some custom build tooling. Uh, you were using CoffeeScript. Like, <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, there was, there, there was a lot of exploration and clearly there's a fierce curiosity, which you were actually exploring and actively, you know, kind of scanning and moving into the development space, which, you know, which doesn't happen until people achieve a certain level of comfort. Um, and so whether or not you're exercising those skills, like I think they've, they have served you well in terms of, you know, the things that you've been able to build, but also kind of acting in that liaison and kind of understanding what's possible and, and stuff like that. And so I'm just curious because obviously once I met you, you'd already kind of, you were, you were already there. Um, and so I'm curious kind of exploring, that journey of coming up the the design ladder, but also coming up the the development ladder too. Um, and so maybe we can kind of talk about each one separately and and then see how they they intertwine. Let's start with the design side. Like, uh, how'd you get into that? I can take you way way back. You know, I think ultimately, and I'd love to talk more about this in a little bit. But I think we as a generation are kind of very unique in that we were raised in the birth of the internet. Some of us are old enough to remember, you know, the early dial-up days, and I certainly was one of those. So I grew up basically obsessed with, you know, drawing and art and painting. I was a designer and artist raised by an engineer, essentially. My dad didn't really have a lot of um, opportunities to explore his creative side to, to basically make a living. I want to say that although graphic design existed to a certain extent, there wasn't really the same blend of engineering skills required. Um, so he was kind of, he kind of decided to take the tack of, I'm going to become an engineer. And so I was raised in a household where he was building everything, but he was also a talented artist. So as a kid, I basically did a lot of uh, advanced art classes, kind of a nerd, pretty much a huge nerd throughout my entire tenure as a high school student. It was also kind of dawn of video games as well. So we had computers coming of age. We had video games coming of age. So I was raised looking at digital art, you know, effectively 8-bit, super accessible and kind of so early on that it was something that I could actually fathom getting into and creating on my own. 
I never got to creating any games, but I will say that by my late high school years, I was um, using a tool called AOL Press. For anybody who's ever heard of that, congratulations, you're one of the few. I've never heard of that. <laughs> AOL Press. We're going to we're have to link to that in the show notes. I've never heard of that either. It's awesome. I mean, it's got a Wikipedia page. It's got like hieroglyphs and stuff. They, they really went all out on this, this product. It's basically the precursor to, to Dreamweaver. It was a very, very WYSIWYG. I'm sure you've heard of FrontPage maybe, Microsoft FrontPage. Yes. Okay, so it was basically a precursor to FrontPage, I would say. And same thing, you know, those are the days of frame sets and all that. And I was I was a kid in, in scouting at the time, and then I wanted to build a web page for the, the troops, so I built one and put it out there. And I think it was kind of I don't I kind of remember that like that that moment where I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to write something and put it on the internet and anybody can see it. And that whole experience was just super exciting. And I know that if anybody's heard um, or if anybody's following Kickstarter, there's one that was started called What Comes Next is the Future. And it was made by Matt Braun and Matt Griffin. And it kind of really explored the birth of the web. So if I would recommend any of your listeners want to really dive deep. If you didn't live through it, check it out. It's it's a great, great film. All the regulars are there, um, as you'd expect. Zeldman's on there talking about it, amongst others. But if it weren't for the web, I don't know that I would be who I am or where I am today, just because it's such a unique platform. It's so open. It's so readily available. There's no barriers. So I would say that, you know, I was just an arts student in high school that picked up AOL Press and then got addicted to, to the web. And from there, it was kind of off to the races. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even know that I could make a living as a graphic designer until late high school and decided I wanted to go to school for graphic design. Went here at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and at that point in time, it was pretty much all print design and then Flash. Um, Flash kind of took over in my second year, and at that point in time, it was Flash and, and frame sets and tables. Right? It wasn't there were <laughs> there was no CSS for layout, so it was yes. very early days. Sounds like you might know what I'm talking about. Have you been there? Oh yeah, this you know they say everyone in the world has like a a twin, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh man, you know Drew is my like <laughs> technology twin. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> when we were raised in that time, and we had to like hack it with frame sets and AOL and and whatever tool, if it were front page or AOL Press, you basically kind of from very early days realized that you had to like force this stuff to happen. It was not easy. It was there was no documentation, and where there was documentation, you were grateful to have it. So yeah, I mean, essentially, we I remember when I was probably just about to graduate. And I think if I look back at my my portfolio piece, it was definitely still flash. Um, and it was timeline based flash. So I also think that, you know, in many ways, the way the web evolved was perfect. You know, as a designer, I was very comfortable in a timeline tool. And flash before ActionScript 3.0, and before they kind of went all object-oriented on us, it was super accessible. You could add little bits of code here and there and create animations. It kind of got you hooked. And then suddenly, you know, I found myself needing to create full-screen full Flash applications and needing to actually write code. Um, actually having to say, okay, if I want this Flash experience to scale, then I need to calculate where things go. I can't just, you know, X, Y coordinate and done. So that's kind of where... I kind of jumped off and and started getting into CSS. Um, CSS was kind of early days as well. 
But, you know, this is again, this is before iPhone, right? So this was kind of like people were using CSS, but people didn't really think it was that important. It was actually kind of discouraged because everybody in the world was using Internet Explorer. And why would you need to know CSS? <laughs> it was unreliable for different browsers. And Internet Explorer was the worst. And so we wound up finding like uh, it was it was basically more or less just I remember I remember sitting in a Dreamweaver conference, a Macromedia when it was Macromedia had a conference and they showed like a web page and then they said and they should they, they hit the print button and they said, does anybody here know like how to how this happened? Like because the layout had changed, everything had looked better, different and it was perfect for print. And I remember my hand shot up because it was like nobody who had was really familiar yet with with like print style sheets. And incidentally, I don't think that people still are <laughs> familiar with print style sheets, but it was a time when finally people were starting to like understand that style sheets were more than just kind of a layout tool. You could change them for all these different form factors and all these different platforms. So it was it was a, it was a fun time to be coming up in this in this age. Oh, I would say like so. It sounds like one CSS and two Flash were actually kind of gateway drugs into the development world. Absolutely, yeah. Do you feel like the absence? Well, so we still have CSS clearly, but do you feel like, you know, so, so Flash, you know, despite what some people might think about it, it was a, wasn't it like a full virtual machine that was running? You could code on it with ActionScript. Uh, it had all these, you know, it was kind of like the JVM mm -hmm. run just, but, but only for running inside the browser. Do you feel like designers might not have that gateway? Uh, available to them anymore, or maybe is the web, you know, just as just as big of a gateway to move into that? Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I certainly think beyond a doubt that had it not been for Flash, we would see a lot less creativity in the space. And I say that only because at the time, you know, if if we had just gone from tables and tried to slowly evolve things, we'd have a much different feel. I, I believe. So certainly, it's it's a gateway drug. We we'd be in a different web today without it. Is it still required? Um, are there any equivalents? You know, I've seen a number of drag and drop web UI all in the web tools, um, web UI tools out there, and many of them claim to create you know production quality code. It's certainly possible to get there without Flash, um, and I think that certainly it's it's time has passed. But we do see tools like Sketch, for instance. These are these are all very much. Um, screen-based design tools that seem to leverage a lot of the same web styles and the web and the web web approaches. So, I think we definitely have the tools there to replace Flash. But yeah, I think from my perspective, it'd be very interesting to go back and imagine would we have you know immersive full-screen web experiences without that Flash? Yeah, I remember it being a very much a topic of conversation, certainly at the beginning of each project or when you were going to implement a feature is, are we going to do this using Flash or is this, are we going to try and do this with native HTML? Or are we going to use, you know, EGADS, a Java applet? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Java applets. <laughs> that was a conversation that was had before the web eventually won out. But I think that there, you know, when, when it was, everything was very, very static. You know, I, I do think that Flash definitely set the expectation higher uh, and kind of forced the web to evolve so that it could be the natural choice in those conversations. I call the time when Flash was around, I, I call it the golden age of user interface because 
you can literally build any user experience, any user interface with Flash that you could dream up. Like mm-hmm. there was no limitations mm-hmm. creatively in the world of Flash. I mean, nowadays we kind of limited, you know, in our box model, but it, it, it's getting better uh, year by year. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me because, you know, before Flash really died out, we had these, let's put it this way, I, I feel as though for a long time, the web was a very much a like a poster site kind of approach. Like you would have tools that were pretty rough on the eyes, pretty hard to use. And then you'd have these very high budget, like for certain films, you'd have these very high budget, fully immersive flash experiences. And oh, yeah. for a blip, there were that that did actually translate at some point into like canvas based and um then you know 3js like 3 3 3d like webgl based experiences in native html but i don't see a whole lot of that anymore it seems as though it's kind of settled down and in many ways i would say killing flash kind of evolved the web from more of a presentational platform to more of a like a user like a usability first platform Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a bit of a double-edged sword. You could build anything you want, like you said, but it wasn't like there wasn't a framework to it. You couldn't really respond. It wasn't really necessarily res- responsive. Response. Yep. And then certainly when Steve decided he wasn't, Steve Jobs decided he wasn't going to put Flash in the iPhone, that was the end of it, right? Um, essentially now, <laughs> yeah. Now we have the web in our pocket. Yeah. Steve Jobs dropped a hammer. That was the that was the memo that was heard around the world, right? Yeah, yeah he dropped a hammer. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that was like 10 years ago, yeah, right? Yeah, they've been celebrating the anniversary for a while, for like the last couple months here. It's been a huge deal. Wow. There's, there's probably listeners who've never heard of that, uh, heard of that memo, mm-hmm. but it's definitely worth a read. The memo, obviously, that you guys are referring to is when yeah, Steve Jobs basically said that Flash would not be on iPhone or iPad, not now, not ever. And... <laughs> That was the end of it. Well, and people often forget, too, that, you know, when it was first launched, um, there was no app store. And he basically said, you know, point blank, you know, anything you need to do on the web, you should be able to do or anything you need to do on this phone, you should be able to do using the web, using native web coding. And Safari at that point in time was really paving the way to bringing those native APIs into the web. So you had geolocation through web. And so in many ways, that too was a huge gateway drug. Suddenly you started looking at the web not as just a, okay, I could use this as, as a, a poster site or as a, you know, informational site or as a news site. I can actually use this to get things done. Um, they're, they're actually treating this platform as a first class citizen. And that to me was super exciting. And I've seen, you know, that that's continued. I don't know if it gets as much attention anymore in the days of Swift and the App Store. But I will say that if you, if your listeners do get a chance to, uh, check out the show I mentioned earlier, what comes next is the future. They even go really, they even dive deep into, um, just how limiting the app store experience can be. How, you know, at least with the web, you're not, you can, you can create whatever you want to create. Mm-hmm. And people seem to go to that URL and install it on their home screen. This is a feature that nobody uses from what I've seen. But, you know, if you bookmark a web app on your home screen, you can have an icon, you can have a, a loading screen, you can mm-hmm. have all this stuff and nobody really uses it for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it's the install, uh, like getting doing the setup, just knowledge uh, about the, the fact that you can do that is not widely disseminated. Yeah, I think it's capability starting to come up now when 
with people making progressive web apps, they're starting to utilize that being able to put, you know, icons on people's screens and loading and loading screens and stuff like splash screens and et cetera. So flash really was kind of the gateway into the development world. Um, and so I'm curious, what were, what, what opportunities do you feel kind of opened up as you started taking on more web technologies, uh, more JavaScript, more, uh, CSS and kind of mixing that with the design that you were doing, what kind of unique skills slash superpowers do you think that gave you that made you, uh, that, that helped you at that stage in your career? Yeah. Well, for better or worse, you know, it really was kind of the, the opportunity to get a job, first of all, um, at all. Um, I know that the job market has been in all sorts of flux, you know, in the last, couple decades. Um, but, you know, I would say 12 years ago, 2005, when I was entering the workforce, graphic design was not necessarily a hot field. Um, I can say with relative certainty that the majority of the people I graduated with didn't necessarily make their way into graphic design as a profession. I would say probably maybe 30 to 40% actually wound up following their their degrees. And that's for the obvious reason that at that time we were starting to see print or digital replace print. So it meant that I was able to get a job for one. It wasn't a dream job necessarily, but it was, you know, I was basically one, one stop shop. You know, I was designing and developing websites. Um, I was working for a company, but in many ways, shapes and forms, I was kind of freelancing as things were. I had a very direct relationship with the clients that I worked with. And, you know, it was basically churning out websites. I think if I recall correctly, at the time, the company wanted to essentially create a Domino's pizza of the web where we could use CSS to um, essentially build the the web, the actual HTML once and then restyle it. So um, this actually was a time when a site called CSS Beauty was just coming of age. And I don't, I think the site still exists, but back then, if you went to CSS Beauty, its big thing was you had one website and people could upload their own CSS and completely change the layout, completely change the look. Oh, I know. Well, are you talking about CSS Zen Garden? Maybe that was it. There was two of them. Yeah. yeah CSS Zen Garden I remember that was one. one of them. Yeah. CSS Zen Garden. And then I think CSS Beauty was like a clone maybe of Zen Garden for sure. Right. And between the two of those, and maybe you're right, maybe Zen Garden was the one where you actually had a website and Beauty was just high, uh, showcasing certain CSS sites. Yeah, I think you're right. Zen Garden was the one. And when they saw that, they were like, wow, business opportunity. We can, you know, build a whole site. And there was something called, well, we were using something called Cold Fusion and, oh, I can't, I'll, it, will, it will escape me now. I think it was called Contribute. So there was a product called Contribute that Macromedia had come up with that worked on Cold Fusion that was, it was basically a WordPress. You know, I mean, you basically set up editable regions. You could, co- you would basically code the site once in that regard in the backend coding and then just rework CSS to create multiple sites. So actually, the opportunity that opened up for me was that job. That job was very squarely focused around the benefits of leveraging CSS. And so eventually, that kind of grew tiring. Um, I kind of wanted to get into the actual marketing and advertising space. And from there, I, I kind of started to just kind of jump jump to the next job. Um, and I, I worked for a very, very small marketing agency. It was called Vetezelo at the time. And we focused on... Lots more Flash, a little bit of CSS websites, but mostly Flash experiences. And they actually used Flash 
in a lot of kiosks and physical spaces. So I started to jump into that, understanding PHP, kind of understanding databases, because we would do things like we would install a Flash experience on little portable tablets that would then sync up survey responses to a web URL that would then dump it into a database. So about that time, I was really trying to teach myself how to how to get really deep into the back end of the uh, of the stack. That was just to make sure that these sites that you're developing, these flash sites, would be scalable and more robust. Just kind of, it was was it just that was the natural next layer uh, to dig down. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if, if, you know, at the end of the day, we wanted to have immersive flash experiences, and we wanted to have the content easy to update. So. You know, I would build these really crude backends with text areas and they would update a database and then the Flash experience would pull that in as content. And that way we didn't have to go in and republish the Flash every time, essentially. You know, it was a much more streamlined process. I think we even gave some of our clients the keys, right? Gave them a login and password and they could change certain things. There's an outfit around here called Crave. They, they were a restaurant in town and we built the website, you know, for them, one of the earlier websites. And so when you had to do things like update times and any, and menus and things like that, it became pretty essential to having some sort of a CMS behind it. It was all based on necessity. In other words, what you said is absolutely true. We had to kind of evolve what we learned and I had to kind of push what I did to kind of deliver on different needs. Yeah. Throughout my career, it's been kind of the guy who does web and design. And it's been, <laughs> and I, and, and one of the things about that is it's kind of a lonely place to be. Find yourself mm-hmm. in creative agencies where the majority of the skill sets are not in development and trying to kind of explain what's going on um, or kind of make commitments on timelines and deliver on them. Whenever a bug shows up, it's it's never really kind of fully understood <laughs> why, why <Right>. it broke. <laughs> um, so it's also a challenge to kind of manage expectations, certainly as a young professional at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, what, is, what, would, what, what would be some advice you would give to somebody who is straddling these roles, you know, at that early career stage where they're, you know, maybe working for a creative agency and, you know, they're, they're, they're fulfilling these two roles, but most of uh, their surroundings is towards the uh, design end. Yeah. I would say, you know, for the most part, just be upfront. If there's anything that's kind of unknown, be kind of upfront about it and, and explain. If you are early in your kind of development career as a designer, kind of do your homework before kind of making any commitments, certainly. I think it's always better to be kind of upfront about these things than to try to overpromise and then scramble at the end. I will say that a lot of my career has been marked with kind of the term code cowboy. Um, as a designer <laughs> teaching myself to code, it was a disparaging term, I guess. I didn't really necessarily take it that way, but I think other developers are trying to use it in that way. Mm. <laughs> Cowboys ain't easy to <laughs> They're harder to hold. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not even embarrassed to say it because the truth of the matter is when you're a designer, you're used to just kind of making a mess before you've kind of landed on what you're done with, right? The entire creative process is messy. And so it's kind of, I think it's inherent. If you're kind of one of these designers turned devs and you basically just kind of hack it until it comes together, that's kind of a natural flow from from the creative process. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as you get more experienced, you want to reduce all that uncertainty and potential for error. So you do learn to hone your craft to you know, use version control to 
embrace a framework or embrace some sort of model view controller approach. But none of that really existed in the early days of the web. So I kind of came up in a time when you had to hack it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, there's a lot of learning that can happen when you're hacking. And building things that are you know, kind of ad hoc. And uh, as you go, like you get to perceive firsthand the problems with them. Um, And without perceiving those problems first, it's really hard to really understand the solutions that the internet has come up with to deal with those complexities. And I would say that, you know, um, you know, even though I did have a pretty low, like I would say it was kind of like a solo designer developer throughout the early years. I'd say that I finally kind of found my people in 2000, in Mm -hmm. 2000, I guess it'd be 2010. Um, I kind of found my people in a local agency called Clockwork. And for the first time, you know, I wasn't the only developer on staff. There was a whole team of developers. In fact, the shop was kind of started as a development shop. Um, and they were making headway into the creative space and eventually becoming, you know, full digital partners. But had it not been for my, my opportunities at Clockwork, I wouldn't have picked up my skill set as a, um, as a back end coder. And from the very beginning at Clockwork, uh, they, they, they kind of expected you to get your hands dirty in code and get your hands dirty in, in the terminal. Um, honestly, so command line was kind of required. Um, even our design work was. And this is, this was all designers needed to be familiar with the terminal tools. Correct. Uh, basic coding. Yeah. So essentially. That's interesting. Essentially we, all of our work, whether it was creative, or whether it was documents, were all managed in subversion. So oh. as, on, as a part of onboarding, you basically learned how to use subversion. <laughs> and yes, there were some, you know, some GUI tools for it. But for the most part, we, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't that steep of a learning curve. It was pretty easy to kind of follow instructions. And that was the, the second gateway drug, I would say. My first gateway drug, again, was kind of coming up in the age of of the web and getting into CSS and Flash. Uh, the second gateway drug was basically being required to learn command line and learning how to navigate a computer without without a display. Had it not been for that, I don't think it would have uh, my career would have taken the turns that it did. I basically got more into the IoT space. I had set up a home NAS server, uh, Drobo FS is what it was called at the time. And it was just a really basic um, machine. But by jumping into that, I could start to play around with Unix and tools there. Started using home automation, playing with that. And at some point in time, I, I made the jump from just web into the role that I play here at Honeywell, which is you know, Internet of Things. We do a lot of Internet of Things. Um, in fact, our, our our latest tagline is the power of connected. So we've embraced it all the way down to our wordmark. And it's becoming kind of, well, it's, it's becoming the new normal for most products. So it's a good time to be kind of at the center of all these different areas of expertise, to be in development, to be in IoT, and to be in design. So that's kind of my path. That's my journey. Um, I, I would I would kind of peg it at a, at a bunch of fortunate fortunate circumstances honestly so having these two skill sets your design uh skills and your development skills uh what do you believe that that gives you in terms of an advantage um having these two skill sets and being able to leverage these two yeah i mean so 
from my perspective, having both skill sets allows me to understand. I think the biggest challenge when working with large teams, particularly in this space or in any space, is to really have a common level of understanding, um, stepping mm -hmm. aside from a functional role and becoming more of a liaison between you know design and development. And to be honest with you, even as we kind of look beyond that, I've even looked at, I took like a three or four or five month course in business administration, actually. It was just a night, it was just mm -hmm. a night class, but I kind of wanted to be able to speak to those needs as well. Um, so I think it really is becoming a translator, serving as a translator between those, those items. And then also being able to understand where the actual boundaries lie. There are a lot of very talented engineers and talented designers. And sometimes opportunities are missed because either timelines are pushing engineers to cut certain functionalities and certain features. There's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so where we can lend a hand, where we can point to possible alternatives, I think that's where we really build cutting edge products. When we really know each domain, we can push those boundaries. So that's kind of where I, I, I enjoy bringing my skill set to the table. Yeah, I can, and I can second that. You know, having having actually worked with you, I think one of the greatest things was, you know, one just the interactions um, that you were coming up with were just really spot on. It wasn't, you know, someone. It wasn't ad hoc. It wasn't. It wasn't just you know some you know, helter skelter. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't helter skelter. It wasn't some developer coming up with like, hey, this is what uh, this looks like, or this is. Uh, you know, some designer putting up like pie in the sky stuff. It was, mm -hmm. I understand what's possible yep. and I'm going to use that to design the best thing that can be possible. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they were, it made the designs very pleasant. And I, you know, some of them were just really, oh man, just really fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I'm thinking especially of like that uh, hierarchical tree selector, mm -hmm. uh, was one. Yeah, that was fun. Which was really just, uh, uh, you know, actually the implementation of that was just a joy. But then the second thing is being able to speak with you on the development challenges and really know that you understood that language. Uh, you know, it really is being bilingual, I guess, uh, in the sense that, you know, I'm talking to you in French and you're talking to, you know, product owners in, you know, German or whatever. But because you're bilingual, like the flow of information is as frictionless as possible. No, I, I mean, I will say that it was, it was a real pleasure from our end working with your team as well, because one of the, one of the trends in many businesses throughout the world today is embracing kind of an, a lean and agile approach to product design development. And one of the growth opportunities I would say in any business is kind of fully understanding how that process works, having the courage to be upfront about, you know, what's a comp, what can be accomplished in a time available. And I think one of the other things is kind of fully understanding those three pegs of the stool. You know, the, there's, al there's always the, the budget, the time, and then the features of any project. And I think that, you know, working with a team that understands that really changes the dynamic. So, yeah, I will say that it's been, it was equally not a pleasure for us to work with your team because there was just a level of courage in, in being very forthright and very and very upfront about, you know, what, what, what do we need to get the job done? You know, what, what has to happen? And so you, you made my job as a translator easy, essentially. Um, there were... Yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh, we aim to please. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. The latest evolution kind of, of where my career 
has taken us in the company is embracing the hardware element. So we've talked a bit about the web and then how that evolved and then having to get comfortable with command line and where that took place. The next kind of evolution for me as a professional was saying, okay, I've always wanted to build, right? I've, I've, I love designing, but I always want to build it. I want to put it out there. And in the last six months, actually, I finally decided that I would pull the Band-Aid off and jump into soldering hardware, writing what code I could, and building actual physical hardware prototypes. So I think the next step, you know, for anybody who likes to follow this maker trajectory, whether it's a creative looking to become a maker or a make or a developer looking to get into creative, is kind of just not stopping. You know, there's always something there. And we're also fortunate to live in a time when I can go on Adafruit, pick up a kit of parts for under $100 and build something that's completely new. And then, by the way, they have like a full-on tutorial that takes you through every step of the process and gives you bits of code to get started. So, like, what's your excuse at that point? If you got a hundred bucks that you can kind of jump, throw and toss into a hobby, pick up a soldering iron and, and go to town because there are videos, you know, there's, there's documentation. Documentation is just everywhere now where it was never there before. And so I think, you know, that's kind of the next step for us is seeing how can we, how can we very early on show real physical world products to um, end users and get feedback. So that's kind of where we're taking design now is beyond the the digital and into the physical. That's uh, that is fascinating. I feel like there's this pendulum that swings through the tech industry of of things moving from hardware to software and back again. We're we're in the middle of this swing towards the outside or towards the hardware again. Uh, like the, the distributed hardware versus like kind of dumb terminals and it's, but it's taking the form. It's very, you know, it's, it's distributed a bunch of across a bunch of devices rather than concentrated on, you know, one like superpowered desktop computer. And, uh, you know that the pendulum is going to swing in it, but it's just always fascinating to say what, see what the actual arc that it takes is going to be. This has been a fascinating conversation. And so, and the reason I wanted to have it, um, and we were actually talking about this before the show uh, started officially, uh, of why why this topic, why this topic of the dev designer, um, and I think that it's a role that is emerging. I think it's still in kind of the early days. I think that I went from three years ago having never really met this type of person uh, to having met and worked with you. Now I would say having met and worked, you know, with three people uh, here at Frontside who uh, fulfill that role. And, you know, now knowing a couple professed dev designers or, you know, people who operate clearly in the design and the developer space on Twitter. And so I feel like it's this emerging career track that might not be fully understood or defined right now, but clearly there's something there. And so we wanted to explore that And so I'm curious if we might be able to open up the discussion a little bit on what is the future uh, of this role? Like what, um, what tasks will it be set to accomplish? You know, when you're assembling your team, you say, oh, get me one of those right. <laughs> uh, because, you know, we're going to need we're going to need that. And how is that going to be further refined and designed so that it scales as, you know, perhaps an official career, uh, you know, in one, two, five, 10, 20 years. I can only speak to my experience in this area. And I can say that for the most part, it is a very, it's a very unique 
skill set in that it's sometimes hard to come by. But like you said, you know, you're working now with three people. I think it's growing in, in prevalence. I believe that whereas coding was less common in the past, it's it's becoming so much more common now that it's almost going to be an expectation, just like typing is an expectation now. You know, people don't people expect you to know how to type. So it's not a surprise that we're going to see more and more of these individuals. I would say that any design team out there could almost invariably benefit from having somebody with this skill set, somebody who can translate design concept into a working prototype. Um, I've seen it manifest as a prototyping role, more or less, just so that we can have a tangible deliverable for developers. I think it's it, it does depend on the team, certainly. If you have small teams with talented front-end developers, then certainly um, you can work in a lean, agile environment and make very quick iterative change. If you have very large design teams and very large development teams, I would say that having a front-end developer with this skill set in a creative team allows that communication to happen without routine phone calls and and lots of meetings, essentially. It's, it's a crystal clear example. And so I've seen it manifest as a prototyping role because the expectation is not that this code will end up in production, but that some of the code may. So the, the layout code may end up in production, but the functional bits may not. That's not to say that the functionality isn't a part of the experience and that designers don't care about how well uh, an experience performs. But typically where I see the disc, where many designers see the disconnect is in the presentation layer. Having somebody who can kind of carry that over is usually something that a far smaller team can handle. I don't know if that, does that, I mean, does that align with your experiences or? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I would say that the compliment uh, from, you know, having this person on your development team is that they're someone who can you know, listen to if, if, you know, if you're kind of in mainline development mode or you maybe you're a small team working on, you know, maybe uh, even if it's a production system, but you don't have full-time design resources, this person can, you know, kind of slice and dice the features and understand the hierarchy of interactions and be able to put together some wireframe some very concrete goals and set those goals for the rest of the development team, uh, but yet also understand what goals are achievable in, you know, the iteration. And so I think, you know, I think it, it works in, it, it works from the flip side as well. Uh, and maybe what we're seeing is the, you know, the agile of vacation of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of everything. Like what, you know, what we've seen over the past 15 years, really 20 years, what has been the kind of arc of my career is just seeing these feedback loops in every element of product development getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so on the development side, we recognize this as being able to feedback loops and verification. So having your tests so that you don't actually have to deploy your system to be able to get feedback about whether it works or be, have, it, have it be fully assembled to get feedback about whether it works. But then, you know, that manifests in terms of continuous integration and deployment. You know, you're bringing down the feedback loop of getting this out in front of people versus 
you know, these long deployment cycles that maybe you really have a release every year. You know, that was, it's hard to believe, but that was the norm uh, when I started was yearly, maybe even, you know, once every 18 months. Uh, it was not uncommon at all to have release cycles like that. Certainly three months was very, very short. But then those tight feedback loops can also manifest itself internally in terms of team communication. And I think having people who can make those feedback loops between the product and between the implementation shorter are going to, every time you shorten that feedback loop, you're unlocking, you know, an exponential amount of time. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you, when you talk about kind of setting scope and understanding things as well. You mm-hmm. know, strictly speaking from agile terminology, you know, having a, a product owner role that can kind of bridge those gaps is kind of critical. And I think that, you know, the best product owners that I've worked with have understood, have had a, an appreciation for design, but also have had some degree of a development background as well. So they know how to make those critical decisions. In any sort of iterative or agile environment, you have to, you know, dice up these features and figure out which ones are going to ship, when they're going to ship. Um, so I think, yeah, you kind of hit it right out of the park with that. You know, whether or not you could ever have a full-on team of just prototypers, I'm not as convinced that that's necessarily scalable. Um, it seems like, you know, there's certainly a role for teams of developers that will break down features. And then there's a kind of teams of creative as well. I think in terms of, you know, the, the, the person who would lead that team, this role definitely seems very well fit. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's it's a great opportunity for someone who's looking, you know, for a leadership position uh, in terms of, of developing and seeing products to market, uh, which is kind of what that's similar to what you're finding yourself in today or where you're headed towards, it sounds like. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, it seems like I do find myself in a number of number of calls kind of bridging those gaps. It's certainly a different dynamic in the agile environment when working with hardware. So that's something that I think we're still exploring and still understanding. Certainly there are companies that do agile with hardware, but there's a whole slew of different challenges. Um, you're not just deploying anymore. You're, you're actually building manufacturing, understanding what needs to ship with what. So I think the next evolution of our company's growth into this space is how do we iteratively produce hardware? Interesting. Yeah, you got to keep me posted. That'll be the next the next time we have you on the podcast. You're going to have it all figured out. Yeah. You're going to be presenting your thesis. Conference talk upcoming. Agile hardware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that'll be very uh, interesting. An iterative development. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you know. In the first iteration, you just take you just throw a bunch of boiling solder uh, on the breadboard and see what works. Okay, no, that didn't work. Let's. Uh, <laughs> Let's yeah. iteratively improve. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you that 3D printing is, is, is making lots of possibilities open up in that space. But yeah, ultimately, yeah. you got you to ship, right? So we, so we use, we use 3D printing and we use, now we're using these, you know, these low cost computers to really prototype real world experiences in mm-hmm. near to final um, industrial design. And we can do that. And Drew, this sounds like you have the coolest job I know. ever. It sounds awesome. <laughs> it's kind of become even more exciting than I had initially in- intended. So yeah, it's it's fun times. I think, you know, again, we're we're living in a time when we can 3D print stuff and have it done within a couple hours. So what better time to embrace these technologies and this creative spirit that's kind of all around us? I, I honestly it's it's just being fortunate. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. This has been a great conversation. And so thank you so much, uh, Drew, for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Tucson is is an amazing place. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like even more fun since when we got to, to, to work with you. If anybody is out there and they're in the design space and they think that, you know, oh, maybe I can't do, you know, development or it's too hard. Like it's not like there's a lot of people out there who are doing it and. Yep experiencing lots of good benefits and i would say that the other thing is you know if you're a developer you should you should think about is looking into the design space you know something that i might be interested in i think it's probably less common that the vector is people move from development into design and not vice versa but there's nothing that says that it can't it can't go that way. And, you know, mo- mostly it's because people just aren't doing it or they think that that option is not available to them. Uh, but clearly it is. And clearly it's a valuable role. And I think this role uh, is going to only get more valuable in the future. I would say I would second that that thought and that notion. I give a quick shout out to Erin uh, O'Neill. She's a former colleague of mine who's given a number of talks about that very topic backend developers caring about user experience, caring about the the design. Mm-hmm. Um, she's given some talks. You could probably find her on YouTube. So, I'll, but absolutely, anybody who wants to you know talk about it, I'm all over the web as Drew Covey, D R E W C O V as in Victor I, and I think I pretty much have that username in every platform. So, mm-hmm. if you Google me, you'll find me. So, all right, we'll we'll look for you. Obviously, you can find us at at the front side on Twitter. The front side on GitHub, and feel free to drop us a line at contact at frontside.io. So, thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye.